This is a 62-year-old white female, Gravita 3, Para 2, AB1, who was initially diagnosed in 1988 when she was 45 and premenopausal. She had a stage 3, T3, N0, M0, left upper outer quadrant, moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma, which was ER and PR positive. Following a modified radical mastectomy, the patient was treated with a Mount Sinai protocol of escalating adriamycin for four months and remained into remission until 2004. The patient's past medical history is significant for severe Crohn's disease, which required a total colectomy and ileostomy in 1982. Her only complication from the adjuvant chemotherapy was one episode of neutropenic fever due to a perirectal abscess, and prophylactic metronidazole was used, and she had no other problems. In 2003, left hip and upper leg pain was felt. An X-ray and CAT scan of the region showed an abnormality, which was consistent with a primary bone malignancy. Her rest of her EOD was negative. She was referred to Sloan Kettering, where the patient's pre-op diagnosis was exactly the same. In the operating room, metastatic breast cancer was found, which was subsequently found to be ER and PR positive. She had a total hip replacement, radiation therapy, pomidronate therapy was begun, and anastrozole was also started. And she had a staging workup afterwards? She did, no evidence of disease. You told me that, I think the surgeon called you from the OR? She called me from the OR. Pat Healy called me up and said, it's breast cancer. Wow. And it looked like, were you able to get the original tissue? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing? It's exactly the same thing. And this is how many years later? 16 16. uh, years later. The pathology went from Mount Sinai to Sloan Kettering, and they even got the slide back. Jim Straussian was the pathologist. The x-rays were sent because she came from Mount Sinai, were given to Dr. Herman, who also, who was the bone radiologist at Mount Sinai, who read this as not consistent with, but definitely consistent with primary bone malignancy. And you're confident she doesn't have a contralateral new primary? Yes, absolutely. She was diagnosed in 1988. Did you take care of her at that point? When I first saw her, yeah. Why didn't she get adjuvant hormones at that point? Because she went premenopausal. She had nothing going on. She went premenopausal. She was premenopausal. It was 1988. At that point, we were saying, although Michael Baum was saying that it worked in premenopausal women, in 1988, everybody else was saying it doesn't work in premenopausal, so she didn't get hormones. Interesting. And my training director, which is Jim Holland, didn't believe in hormones at all. uh, (laughs) If you did it, you weren't getting your letter for the board. (laughs) In that big uh, cancer center in Houston also, and also people in San Antonio were anti-hormones for premenopausal women until the overview came out in the 90s, right? Do you remember that, Mark? Oh, absolutely, sure. A real interesting lesson there. She got diagnosed (laughs) the wrong year. Same exact lady shows up in your office today without the hip met. But you see, look on her record. You see she had a T3 tumor in 1988, clearly ER positive. She's never had hormones. Do you start her in 2006 on a hormone, Mark? No. On an AI specifically? No, I don't. If she'd come in 2006, I would have certainly discussed with her chemo prevention, but then that would have been either tamoxifen or raloxifene. But I still think that you know, there could be added benefit in that patient population who's never received hormone therapy. You could also discuss the possibility of an aromatase inhibitor, but there isn't the data with chemo prevention with aromatase inhibitors. So if your goal at 16 years, you know, if you're going to have a recurrence, you may not be able to halt it with hormone. We just don't have the data to enter, add a 
hormone therapy for treatment of a cancer 16 years before, but we do have data for chemo prevention, and so therefore the data that we have is with tamoxifen and raloxifene. It's always hard with radiographic studies, and it may be that having the hip replacement will turn out to be the best thing for her. She's a late relapser. It's still ERPR positive, and what we've had problems with is we radiate these people because they need radiation, and then six years later, their hip is destroyed, you know, and they have something else, or they have, for example, we had one woman who had had radiation to her lumbar spine, and eight years later, without any progression of disease, the vertebrae collapsed and compressed her spinal cord. She had 22 hours of surgery to stabilize her spine, and she's still doing well three years later, but it was a massive event. And so I think that in these long-term survivors, we have to be cautious about using radiation as our only treatment course. So, And we may be seeing a lot more late relapses now that we're treating with hormone therapy for longer and longer. And what we're going to be seeing now are late relapses as opposed to the earlier in ER-positive disease. And you guys also have been talking about a delayed fulvestrant trial. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? I thought that was really interesting. The CLGB has been working on a trial where women who've received five years of an aromatase inhibitor would receive two years of fulvestrant. And obviously, fulvestrant's been tested in postmenopausal women, so that's a perfect situation. But there's been a lot of acceptance worldwide that longer course hormone therapy is better. And in the MINDAC trial, which is specifically an ER-positive early-stage disease in Europe, looking at genomic profiling and triaging therapy, all the patients who receive hormone therapy will receive seven years of therapy. So they've kind of made that leap to say, well, five years just isn't good enough. So. And we're looking at 10 now in the NSABP trial. Could you just briefly follow up on what happened? Oh, sure. Two years later, she presented with hepatic metastases. A re-biopsy was done, and she was ER and PR negative, but she was HER2 positive. We didn't do HER2 in 88. What um, do you mean it was HER2 positive? By fish. Fish positive. And fish positive. In somebody who relapsed 16 years out. She was I have a patient positive. who relapsed at 13 years who was ERP I don't, negative I, positive. I actually didn't go back to look at that as a research But thing. I have to say, I have a patient who had a transplant for 10-node positive ER positive disease, ER positive PR negative disease in 1990. He relapsed with ERPR negative HER2 positive disease, and we retested that, I think, four times. She relapsed with extensive liver metastases at 13 years. So, so. this whole program then is going to be about things that really don't happen. We treated her with pacotaxel and Herceptin. She actually did well for eight, nine months. The disease progressed. We treated her with radiation therapy because of Gleason capsular expansion with Zalota. She did five months, and then she, it blew all over the place, and she died recently, earlier this year. Well, it was really something. I mean... <laughs> We like to think that we understand, that we can homogenize the disease, but as we've seen this morning, you know, they're just people who don't fit the category. Mark, any thoughts about this Did she respond to the taxol herceptin, did you say? She had absolutely stable disease. Just for how long? Eight months. Okay. And then she exploded, and she had a radiation therapy, took Gleason's capsule, continued on Zalota until there was obviously major progression. We stopped And then they developed sort of a leukemic type disease where everything explodes, you know, and in those patients, if you measure circulating tumor cells, you know, they're over a thousand and they die very rapidly. And I think, again, you know, some patients, a small number of patients who have hormone receptor positive disease relapse with a very aggressive disease and live a very short time, but thankfully that's a small number. Dr. Weintraub? If lady relapses with bone meth, she's postmenopausal, what makes you think about which AI to use? Do you use full Vestrand? What about your thoughts of synergism with an AI with full vestrin? I think it remains to be seen in the clinic. We need trials to 
test. That is an interesting strategy. It's being looked at in clinical trials. I know there's trials looking at anastrozole versus anastrozole plus fulvestrin, which is a cooperative group study. Hope, what's the theory behind that? My understanding is it's kind of like, you know, it's sort of almost like doing an ovarian suppression. You know, you want to lower the estrogen level and hopefully the fulvestrin will work better. Is that your sort of take? Well, I think it goes both ways. And there are quite elegant preclinical models indicating that if you could get around the tamoxifen potentially metabolic effect on the aromatase inhibitors or whatever other interactions are going on that we wouldn't understand, that sort of doing combined hormonal blockade a la prostate cancer would be a more effective treatment and potentially result in less resistance. Obviously, the idea being that you would move that approach into the adjuvant setting. So it is absolutely a clinical trial question, and I wouldn't do it outside of a clinical trial, but the whole idea is that you block the different arms where hormones can cause and promote cancer growth. So at the receptor level, down-regulating the receptor, and at the production level in tissue. We're hearing about you know multiple targeted therapies in a bunch of tumors now, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer. What about the concept of combination hormone therapy, Mark? And what about the dose and schedule for Vestrin, as long as we're talking about it? How do you approach that? I think most of the ongoing studies of Vestrin are using a loading dose, because I think dose may be an issue, and there are big trials comparing you know, the various doses head-to-head ongoing, and so we'll get data to see whether there's a clinically meaningful impact with a higher dose. I suspect there may well be. I think that that's something that's a major concern, and I wonder whether if fulvestrin works as we think it does in terms of estrogen receptor degradation, if you get the right dose of fulvestrin, then you may not need an AI because right. if you don't have the receptor, then the ligand should really not make any difference. So it'll be very interesting to see what these head-to-head comparison studies look like combining AI and fulvestrin, but I suspect that if the fulvestrin is used in sufficient dose, you may not need an AI. Sushil? What Hope said before was we had the ADAC trial where they used the arimidex tamoxifen together, the third arm. How does that jive with everything else that we just talked about in terms well, I think of combinations? If you look actually at the preclinical model of that combination, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to study it. And I think that you know the tamoxifen is such a metabolically active drug and that it may just change the metabolism of the aromatase inhibitor and so that there's less effectiveness. So I think that, in fact, in some ways, it makes it more interesting to study the combination of fulvestrant and an AI. But I also echo what Mark said in that you know it may be hard to see that difference and that, indeed, a lot of the difficulties with fulvestrant from the trials that are so far reported are likely due to the pharmacokinetics. And it's kind of an interesting lesson in how we study drugs that, you know, giving an agent that takes three months to get to steady state to women with progressive metastatic disease is not going to be as effective. So you might want to be able to give the drug in a way where you'd get up to steady state levels within a month. And so that's why the idea of giving this loading, you know, giving the dose every two weeks for three doses. So I think incredibly important. Real quick take from Mark when you're sequence of hormones in premenopausal woman. You have a premenopausal woman relapses on adjuvant tamoxifen. You give her ovarian suppression. She has a response. Then she progresses. You're going to continue the LHRH agonist and add in an AI? Sure. Or you could switch to another serum. You can always use terimiphene, for example, in those situations. Fazlodex would probably be my next Would you choice. give her a premenopausal menstruating woman Fazlodex, or would you keep the LHRH agonist going to give her Fazlodex? Depends on how long they responded to the LHRH manipulation. If it's been a long time, I might just add in an AI. What was the next move after the AI? 
pick your poison. Hope. I mean, I, Fazlodex I, or Trimaphine. Yeah, I use, you know, the GNRH agonist, LHRH agonist, and the premenopausal women based on all the controversial data, I think quite interesting data from the EORTC suggesting that survival is better if you suppressed ovaries and gave tamoxifen rather than either one by itself. And so I do use aromatase inhibitors in that setting as well, carefully monitoring the estradiol level. So if the patient had responded well to the tamoxifen combination, then I would, without question, start an aromatase inhibitor, and then the next step would be fulvestrin. And you keep the LHRH agonist going during the fulvestrin? Yes, absolutely, because all of the data is in postmenopausal women. So actually, I think that's really important when we use fulvestrin in any setting in women who could be premenopausal. I want to go on to Dr. Lichter's case. Dr. Lichter? 